0: good afternoon ldb we are back with another podcast i am chris schutzer i'm joined by my three uh league mates here we've got our our commissioner co-commissioner i should say matt Starr. matt say hi
1: how's it going guys
0: and once again, we have uh, Sean Crean and we have Michael Becker. Sean, say hi to everybody.
1: Hey, everybody.
2: Hopefully you could hear that music this time. We're pretty excited about our John Fogerty edition.
0: Yeah. And Becker, we're not going to make you wait five minutes to talk this time. How are you doing?
3: Doing great. I'm doing great.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, folks, we are true to our word. We're, we're trying to do this once a week, and we're very excited with our With our content that we've got planned for you today. Um, As we promised, we said we were going to make this a show where we were going to try to let you guys get to know us and hopefully eventually get to know you all better as well. And what better way to do that than with some silly icebreakers. Um, You guys may not know this, but in my career, I am uh, a clinical counselor, and I have to have a ton of these. So I've got some baseball specific ones, but I also have uh, one very random one as well that's just totally out there. So We'll start with baseball. And then if we're feeling the mood, we can go to the other one too. Um, Sean, I'm gonna start with you. I'm curious to know, it's a two-parter. Who is your favorite player from when you were growing up uh, that you enjoyed watching? And what is the most overrated or underrated baseball uniform?
2: Pedro Martinez, for sure. I still remember like sitting in the car, listening to Sports Talk Radio when the Red Sox traded for him. Very exciting moment in my life. and most overrated uniform, huh? Like, I, I have strong feelings about some of the more modern uniforms, but I don't think anyone thinks that like the Diamondbacks uniform is pretty good, particularly good. Um, well, I guess Chief Wahoo, like the, I don't know if that's overrated, but that's that's one that should probably go and change. So that, that
0: that'll be my answer. That's a good answer. You're allowed to go underrated or overrated, so I feel, uh, yeah. Um, but that's a good answer. Pedro was really fun to watch when we were kids.
3: Becker, how about you? Well, I've got a spicy take for the overrated uniform. I'm going to go with Dodgers, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, classy, beautiful. I've never understood the red though. Why are the why are the numbers red? Does anyone know? Made no sense to me.
2: Never even really noticed
3: that. Yeah, you will never unsee it. Huh. But growing growing up, my favorite ball player was Cal Ripken Jr. So I grew up in the area, um, didn't have a a local team to root for. So it was the Orioles. We just considered them the local team and wore number eight, played shortstop, even though I was lefty, but worshipped, worshipped Cal.
0: I still actually feel like that's one of those moments that from our generation, we all know where we were when he broke the record. Um, and And I distinctly remember how big of an event it was. Um, and that's one, I think, that stands the test of time. I don't think that's ever getting broken.
3: Oh, I still have a, a VHS recording of that.
0: Yeah. Uh, Star, are you ready to go?
1: Yeah. Um, so my my favorite player growing up, a bit of a random one, but I loved Howard Johnson, the third baseman for the New York Mets in, like, the late 80s, early 90s. He was amazing uh, and does not get a lot of love, but, like, yeah, he's a pretty good player if you go back. and you know, He had a few, few really good years, and uh, I don't know, it captured my attention. My first ever professional sporting event was uh, a Mets game at Shea Stadium in, I want to say, 88 probably, when they were like kind of at the height of their powers. Yeah, those are good um, answers. In terms of, in terms of uniforms, uh, I, I'm also going to harken back to my youth I love, and I still love the, the White Sox uniforms. Uh, I think they're maybe a little underrated. Uh, just the black and white. I remember when they changed from that like weird gray, dark blue thing to that black and white as a kid. That was the greatest thing ever. I had like, no tie to the White Sox, but bought a White Sox hat just because I loved the, the look. And also Frank Thomas.
0: Yeah. Great what about t- you, Chris? Great takes on all these. Uh, my favorite player when I was a kid was Willie McGee. Um, I don't know if you guys remember Willie McGee quite like I do. I was devastated when he got traded to the A's. Uh, but he had, you should all go back and watch it. He had the best, uh, batting stance. Like just the one that like, as a kid, you wanted to emulate where he stuck his butt out, like as far as he possibly could. And it was just very dramatic. Um, not much of a power hitter, but he had
1: the bat, he had the bat like straight up in the air too, right? It was like, it was a weird, it was a whole weird thing going on there.
0: Oh yeah. It was so fun to root for Willie McGee um and then in terms of uh uniforms actually becker i'm gonna be honest you you stole mine i was gonna say the dodgers is overrated but i was ready knowing i'd be fourth with a second take and and it's the pirates i think the pirates are also overrated i i will credit the city of pittsburgh with having uh being the only city that has all their sports teams have the same colors i don't know if you guys ever paid attention to that um but the black and yellow is is pittsburgh's colors and uh i think that's pretty cool um, that said, I think of, of the, the uniforms, um, I just always thought they could do better. It felt kind of, I don't know. It, it feels like a Yankees, uh, like the Yankees want to be uniform to me. Um, they, and the, the pirates other... also is kind of random. I don't know how the pirates ended up in Pittsburgh, but yeah. How did that happen? That's a, that's when we got a they're,
1: they're river I, guess, pirates, I, guess I guess there are rivers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. River pirates. <laughs> yeah. Um, Chris, I, I do want to ask you, as, as a fan, that, that those Cardinals teams that McGee played for were great, but, it's, I, I, like, I mean, how could it not be Ozzie? And, uh, how, how can you overlook Ozzy for William McGee? How can you overlook Vince Coleman? I love Vince Coleman, man. So Vince
0: Coleman, Vince Coleman would have been my number two. Uh, I feel like the Wizard of Oz was really fun to watch. Uh, he was never the one that you wanted up to bat with the game on the line, though. And I feel like when you're a kid, you care more about offense than defense. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm alone in that, but um, McGee was the one that I counted on. I also really liked uh, Tommy Herr. Uh, the Red Sox fans will remember Brunansky, her, that trade broke my heart. Um, Sean, do you know what I'm talking about? When, when you guys had, no, I, you weren't, you weren't. I, into was that, I wasn't, I didn't really start paying attention until like mid nineties. So like no more Garcia, part that era. Tommy Herr was the Cardinals second baseman and, and the Red Sox had Tom Brunansky and they, they made a trade. Um, and that one broke my heart when I was a kid, so all right should we should we do one more uh get to know you silly question um, all right i'm i 'm going to go to the superheroes here uh, same overrated underrated, but give me your most overrated or underrated superhero i 'm not going to ask you what superpower you want. I just want to know from when you were reading the comic books as a kid we 'll go reverse order star i 'm putting you on the spot first on this one
1: overrated a hey, Batman is. Like extremely overrated. I never, I never really understood the love for Batman. Um, you know, he has no powers. He's kind of a dick. Uh, he's like basically a fascist. Going to say no, bat, no, no on Batman. Um, um do I need a, do I need an over, an underrated superhero author, or just you just can? I mean, if you, if, you, if you have one, you go with it um underrated uh there's a superhero called Morbius unfortunately they're making a movie out of it starring Jared Leto and I'm not excited about it but he was like this kind of it was kind of like this this vampire character who was kind of uh like anti-hero kind of before that was a thing um was like my favorite comic when I was I don't know probably 10 11 12 years old something like that no one really knows much about him now we're going to get an unfortunate blumstip. I'm assuming could Kevin Jared Lita at the I'm
0: going to have to look into that one. It's a strong take on Batman. I, I really disagree with you. I feel like the vigilante streak and uh, the no power thing is actually what makes him cool. But, um, it's interesting. Um, Becker, where, where are you going on this one?
3: Yeah, I hadn't heard the Batman as a fascist argument before. <laughs> That's a very unique take. Um, I, I think most overrated I'll go with Spider-Man, no particular reason. I just never appealed to me most underrated silver surfer. So I collected Marvel trading cards in the early nineties. And I just remember adoring the silver surfer card. It was just the coolest look. Uh, I know nothing more about him. I'm not particularly big on superheroes, but silver surfer takes
0: me back. That's a great answer. I remember Silver Surfer. I like
1: Silver. Sur- Silver Surfer started as a villain and then became a hero too, which kind of kind of a cool, uh, cool arc. I think he was like the same, he was like kind of a, a villain, and then it turned out he was kind of like being held as a slave, basically, and rebelled against his captor. Decidedly not a fascist. <laughs> no, definitely not.
0: I kind of knew this question was going to be a hit, and that you guys would have a real depth of knowledge. I, I actually would bet that of the sixteen owners in LDB, at least 14 of us were comic book nerds. Um, Sean, you got an answer?
2: Well, I wasn't a comic book nerd, but on the Batman piece, I'm a, I'm a big Batman fan and I would just kind of take the question in a different direction. The most underrated Batman movie, I think, is the, the first Tim Burton one, which is how I got into Batman. I thought that was just such a great vibe in that movie and I think people have kind of forgotten it. Um, I agree with Becker. I, I've never been into Spider-Man. He's always seemed super boring and, and kind of basic. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, he has cool powers, but I just, the whole personality, the package, the origin story, I just never got that into.
0: Yeah. I'm surprised that the one that I thought would come up most did not come up, and that's that Superman, I think, is pretty overrated and boring, but I won't actually take that take. Instead, I'll I'll stick with Wolverine. Um, I'm a little annoyed by the Wolverine series. I'm annoyed that he's the one that gets all the, uh, the, the attention from the X Men series. I think uh, Professor X and Magneto are just way more interesting personalities, um, and for that reason, I'll go with Professor X as my most underrated. Um, he never uses power for, for evil, but it's it's a pretty awesome power, just being able to read minds and, and get in people's heads like that. I
2: I almost said Xavier as well, but I just feel like I love him so much. I just assume that he's properly rated in my head, but
0: that's, that's a good one. he never does any fighting, so it sort of feels like you know for that reason he's. I thought he was yeah. Um All right, should we get into baseball, guys? Enough with the silly questions. I think it's time. Yep. Uh, Sean, I'm I'm going to hand over the reins to you, buddy. Uh, I think this is going to be the very first time that we introduce the segment "Downwind with the with the Wind." You ready?
2: <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, I didn't have my fart sound effect ready, but maybe next week. Um, yeah, today we're just going to kind of get into a lot of things, really, to to pre auction and and rotations and pitching, but before we do that, uh, we thought I would just talk to Matt a little bit about his process uh, for coming up with his, his rankings. So Matt, I mean, I, I think we've talked one-on-one and, and over broader email before about this many times, but what's, what is your process? Like I, you, I think recently you were mentioning you did like an average of, of the analysts that you like. So I guess to start off, like who are your analysts that you most respect in
1: terms of building out your own rankings? uh in, in terms of pitchers i it, i mean I, I i kind of do it different ways for hitters and pitchers i kind of have like different processes there but if we're talking about pitchers uh there's a few guys um you know enosaris is probably like my my number one uh, i mean that guy's just so in the weeds on pitching these days and you know
0: basically helped
1: come up with this, this command this stat for tracking command um which has been kind of evolved and, and turned into something pretty special over time and it's, Shown to be pretty accurate as as you know a stat that's or, or a skill that's pretty difficult to quantify something I that they've they've worked on and try to figure that out so I mean just the fact that this guy was like so dedicated to evaluating pitchers that he like helped build a new stat to evaluate kind of the unquantifiable aspect of pitching is pretty telling I mean he's just he you know he's he's so into he's much more into like how pitches move, how pitches work together in ways that, like, I think other, other analysts just are not on the same level. So he's kind of my go-to guy. But the guys at PitcherList uh, are, are great. Uh, Alex Fass, Nick Pollock um, do great work. And then, and then the Fangraphs the guys, Paul Sporer, Justin Mason. It's, re- it's really that group of people that I pay attention to. I don't really care. I, nobody else really, I think, is in the weeds in the same, same way that those yeah. guys are. And So when it comes to pitchers, it's kind of that, that those five guys. Yeah,
2: I, I love Eno you know, Saras as well. That's kind of why I subscribed to The Athletic when he left Fangraphs is like, okay, I need to read his stuff. Um, yeah, the command plus metric is interesting. Like I, it's kind of complicated the way they come up with it but I, I, I remember reading about the methodology before and being fairly persuaded by it. Um, and I like, you know, he's just very good at translating the analytics to a, a lay audience. And it's interesting too, because he's he's even covered the trends of within clubhouses and and teams like the. The growing role of, of the, the person that takes that analytics from the front office and translates it to the players um, and he's had a bunch of funny articles where he goes and p- talks to, to various pitchers about their kind of advanced metrics and some of them are game to talk about it and some of them aren't but I've always enjoyed the various ways that he's covered the evolution of pitching over the last 10 years um, so okay so I think one thing that you talk a lot about in your rankings is you know the front line you kind of point out whether someone has a good SP one, SP two, and then and then talk about depth. So tell me a little bit more about how you weight one versus the other. Cause I was reading something recently at baseball prospectus and and they were analyzing like the different tiers and the, the current, I guess, orthodoxy that's emerged is that, you know, you wanna you want to get one or two top guys early on. And then towards the middle rounds, it starts to become more of a dart throw and 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 so is that more of a portfolio play? How do you think of how do you think of the depth piece?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think front end pitching is definitely the most important thing. Um, you know, I, I think I think I tried to when I tried to figure out when I tried to do the rotation, I kind of tried to basically price everybody's uh, pitching staff and kind of seem like, okay, what would it cost to like build this pitching staff in this auction, and that was kind of what was driving that. But obviously, you know, like the you know an ace pitcher is worth like seventy, you know, so it's, let's say seventy million. So that's that's the same as like. A top, you know, ten to fifteen guy, plus like a top thirty guy. So like you know, Garrett Cole or Shane Bieber or, or especially Degrom carry a lot of weight on their own. Which I think the, a lot of the criticism I feel like that people gave me was like that I ranked the teams that had those pitchers higher than they deserve to be. But in my mind, like those guys in particular are so far ahead of everybody else. There's there's three guys who are just like miles ahead of everyone else right now. And then you kind of have this group of, and then and there's, there's pretty clearly tiers. So there's kind of like another tier of like, you know, 10 to 15 guys. And then like maybe another tier of like 20 guys. And then it kind of becomes a free for all. So it's like the, the teams who had guys who were had multiple guys who were in those first kind of three or four tiers of players. I think that's really what carried the most weight and like depth is important, but like depth of top, 50 pitchers is a lot more important than like having a bunch of guys who are, you know, just guys, uh, which isn't all that valuable.
2: (laughs) So I think, I think you and I could probably go in a little more depth on like, cause cause I find the the depth thing is interesting to think about because I think when you, for me, like once you go past like the top 30, it, it, it can be just like your bias, like anyone's personal bias, like a player they like or don't for me, like what I get impressed by is when I see a bunch of guys in that, in that kind of tier, because it's, to me, it's a lot about portfolio approach at that point, like whether, you know, two out of the five guys you have bust and then the other three are good, or if it's just gives you those options to play matchups over, over the weeks and you don't always have to rely on one of them if they have a tough team against them. But um, I think, uh, I see Chris and Beck are both playing with their hair because I feel like they have some comments here. They want to dive into the ranking. So maybe we can just jump in specifically to certain, um you know, teams that, that any of us thought looked good coming into the auction or just like push back on where we think someone was too, too highly ranked or too low, too low ranked. You wanna just jump into that, Chris? I know
0: you're, uh, you're MC of all this, so. I, I don't have to go before Becker, but uh, so I, I will in this case, just um, my, my take is this. I, I feel this exercise is a flawed exercise um, mostly. And I know we all probably agree on that because a lot of these teams are incomplete on purpose. Um, but it does show, you know, those teams that really have built their strength there uh, around the homegrowns. You know, when it comes to the co- like the contracts that are um, so huge, like I look at, at uh, Mark's contract of 60 whatever um, for DeGrom. I don't I, like while I love DeGrom and I'm not here to knock DeGrom at all as a strategy going into a draft, that scares me. And I know that sometimes you have no choice if you want to have the ace, but just in terms of like a team complexion, what that does to your team, I twice in my, however many years I've done this, I've paid 50 plus for a pitcher and had that guy go down at some various point and ruin my season. Um, You know, I, I cannot remember who had Kershaw when I came into the league for the first like three or four years, but as soon as he became a free agent, I was the one that went like, Balls to the wall and got him, and that was the year he missed most of the season, and it completely killed me. Um, and then the other one that stands out to me as as being similar was the year that uh, Arietta got hurt. Um, and so, like, I just, I, like, I think as a strategy, being the one who goes out and pays fifty plus, sometimes the the value is just there and you have no choice. But I think that's an overrated strategy that I don't love. I'm more of what Sean was saying about like, you know, trying to get a number of guys. Obviously, if you need an ace, you need an ace. Um, but it's, it's, it's not always such a slam dunk to me. Becker, what are, you th- what are your thoughts?
3: I think pitching is going to be a bloodbath this year. Uh, and it will be just a year unlike any other in fantasy baseball for pitching. And Star and I have had this conversation, and I know he disagrees. Uh, I think very few people will uh, get to even 180 innings. And that there is the value of someone like Jacob deGrom or Garrett Cole, uh, some of the tried and true aces. But we're going to have maybe two people at 100 innings, four people above 190 or 180, maybe 20 above 170. But I think everyone else is going to be 160 and below, and we're going to see a lot in the 100 and 130 inning categories. So then, you know, all of these projection systems, are basing this on someone who's going 175 innings, maybe even 180. So uh, I I think you have to account for the fact that guys are going to get hurt. uh, They haven't ramped up. um, And I I think the effect on teams will be that we all struggle to make 44 innings each week. Unquestionably, unless you have a couple of aces who are really putting in six, seven innings, a start, I think it's going to be a bloodbath. And so uh, as an exercise these these are great pre-auction rankings but i think once the auction begins and then the season begins it's just going to be spaghetti against the wall and where everyone's going to start flailing A personal opinion
1: yeah i mean i i, I don't I, in fact i don't i don't disagree with that at all i mean we i think we disagreed on like you know, the exact numbers of who is going to get to how many innings. But I think, I think you're absolutely right that the season is going to be a mess from that perspective. And I think, um, you know, depth is prob- depth of quality, their quality depth is probably more important this year than maybe ever before for that reason. Because, yeah, I mean, I, the number of pitchers who, who are going to get to 200 innings, I think we can count on one hand. I mean, that was already happening anyway, and I think it's going to be even worse this year. Um, and I think you're right. I think we're going to see a lot of guys – in like a 150, 160 range, you normally would have gotten like, you know, 170, 180. It's significant. It makes a difference. You know, one inning, one inning less per start over the course of the entire season or something like that. Or, you know, a stretch where, you know, a phantom DL stretch or just like a skipped start here and there. These things are going to happen. Maybe I'm being cynical, but I
3: think 160 innings, even for maybe an SP2 or 3, is ambitious. I really do, because that in most cases will be 100 more innings than they threw the previous year. And there really hasn't been uh, a, a jump up like that at a widespread scale um, as long as I've been playing fantasy baseball at least. And I know teams are going to be extra cautious. There, there aren't really great ways to understand how to protect arms. Uh, and in some sense, it's still an antiquated system, just you know, reduce innings or spread innings out um but i think we'll see a lot of that
0: i wonder i mean last last summer
2: there no i was just gonna say i mean i i didn't follow up at the end of the season but i remember like by two-thirds into the shortened season last year there was like a a huge like a hugely hugely abnormal number of injuries to pitchers just last year given the disrupted um spring training and just the, the very long break so it'll be interesting this season like i think some teams will um intentionally limit those workloads and then some may not but but there may just be more injuries to those pitchers and that'll that'll be the other way that we'll see the, the the innings drop but um yeah I mean certainly for younger pitchers like I'm excited about Jesus Lizardo for example on my team but I don't know he may only get like 130 innings and I can't say that doesn't impact the way I think about promoting him like I think I have to promote him but I'm like oh man I'm not I'm probably not going to get like a real full season out of him
1: what I'd like to, to bring up oh, oh go ahead Chris Sorry, I, you, what you, I was going to say, say,
0: say is that so, I yeah. really do, I really do think two quick things on this. I really do think we're going to see a differentiated approach between the teams that are in it versus those that are out. You know, the Dodgers have clearly put a stake in the ground for the way that they handle pitchers. But I think for some of the teams that really have to uh, time their, their, their talents, they may push in a little bit more and let their guys go a little bit. Um, if they really do think that they have a shot to win something uh, versus, you know, the teams that are, more in the building stretch i I think they'll protect their guys and make sure they don't uh risk injury any more than they have to so maybe more than other years becker i agree that that we might see that um i also just want to like not to derail the conversation but i i just want to thank you matt for putting these out with consistency because the reality is i think we actually take it for granted as a league um, that you take time to to give us something to talk about, uh, and they're fun to read. They're really interesting, and I think more often than not, you get it uh, pretty close to right. I like to tease you when I think you get it wrong, but you know, that's that's easy for me to do because you're the one who's taking the time to do it, and we're just reading it. Um, so uh, I do I do think that uh, it's awesome that that we have this to even speak about in the first place. Um, I did interrupt you.
1: So what was your thought? Oh. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that. I was going to say, I think another facet of coming off this shortened season is, I think it makes it. You know, this is this is the case for all players, but it's just it's so much harder to project what what this year is going to look like. Not just from an innings perspective, but also from a talent perspective. Like, you know, if you had a guy take a, who seemed to take a step forward last year, and I've like I've learned a little bit more. You know, just as I delve into this stuff. About, you know understanding why guys have taken steps forward and whether these you know whether these things are, are sustainable like whether whether there was a new pitch or you know or whether that you know a guy figured out how to throw a new pitch uh in a in a new way things like that that like really made a tangible difference but it's tough to know in a short season like how real these things are like you know i'm looking at a guy like a guy on my team like tyler molly started throwing a new pitch last year but, and, and had massive success with it and took a big step forward. But it's like, okay, well, he's got like 48 innings of having success with that pitch. Like, you know, Do we know that he can sustain that level of success with that slider that he never threw before last year? I have no idea. It's, it's hard to know. Guys, guys gain and lose the ability to throw pitches all the time. When, when guys have success like that for a shortened stretch, it makes it still hard to know what that means for the future.
2: I was reading a, a preseason piece about, um, you know, same things that you're talking about, like the sustainability of certain changes. And, and this this particular author, you may have read this. I don't know if it's pitcherish or where else, but they were talking about split finger fastballs. And this this analyst was making the case that split fingers can very quickly change their effectiveness. Like it's a feel thing, and like pitchers can be in a groove for a season or even half a season, and they just lose it. And it's like it's just another layer of complexity. Cause I'm like you, I'm like looking out for that change in pitch mix or like maybe a couple of velocity mile per hour velocity increase, which is a more obvious one. But uh, even then it's like these things are, can be very fickle
1: and, and, and change very quickly. So. man, if you, if you want to look at evidence on the splitter, I mean, just look at Tanaka and, and the success that he, he had completely changed with whether or not his splitter was working for him. And he said the change in the ball a couple of years ago basically ruined his splitter's effectiveness. He couldn't throw the splitter anymore. And so in like 2019, 2020, you saw a drop-off in his stats. Look at how effective his splitter was before that and how effective his splitter was after that. And it's just like, okay, it's, how do you, how do you predict that they changed the ball again? So we don't know what that's going to look like. Go ahead, Becca.
3: Yeah. And it's, it's not just the splitter, right? It is literally every pitch you talk to a pitcher after his start and he will say, didn't have my curveball today or didn't have my fastball command and in aggregate over the course of a season that can correlate to what you see on baseball Savant, but on any given day, they can learn within the first, you know, 15 pitches, whether they're going to have a feel for a curveball or a slider. And if they don't, they're going to try to do what they can without it. So suddenly that hot new pitch is, uh, you know, now you're left with fastball slider.
1: So another yeah, a, perfect um, say, a perfect example of that. Go ahead, Sean. No, no, no. Go, stop. go. I was going to say a perfect example that one of that. one of the pitcherless guys, I came up with that for Paul. I wrote a piece on Zach Eflin, on, on this exact issue. And that Zach Eflin, going back to the start of 2019, from start to start, either has the curveball or does not have the curveball. It's like very clear. And he had he had what appeared to be a big breakout in 2020. Well, that was because he had 12 starts and he had the curveball on like eight of them. And so that made a huge difference. But over the course of the season, is he going to have that curveball two thirds of the time? I think that's, that's tough to know. And it's tough to buy into like, a, you know, eight starts, eight out of 12 good curveball starts for Zach Eflin. It's kind of hard to, to buy into, especially given the nature of that curveball, which is like a flow, you know, 70, 78 mile an hour kind of curveball.
2: Yeah, I was just going to jump in, like, and and even beyond this stuff, I mean, I, one of the things I love about baseball in general is just, like, the the different levels of analysis you can bring to it, and once you think you discover one thing, there's someone coming out with some new innovative way to, to look at things, and there's another um, athletic author I like called, uh, his name is Al or I think, I don't know how you pronounce his name, uh, but he has recently been doing research on just the density of air, air density, and how it affects teams who go from one, uh, you know, if you if you look on the west coast, there's this um, marine layer, right, which impacts the the density of the air and the way the ball travels, and, and there's a noticeable effect on all those ballparks. But this this guy just kind of puts out data, looking at basic weather forecasts, and he's like, okay, well this team is traveling away from a dense dense air environment to a lighter air environment, and and so he kind of throws all this different uh, projections at it. And you know, I think he's still working on it, but there is something to be mined there, and some of this is better for DFS, but you know, there are certain pitchers that, 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 will, that will be hurt by it, but by that sort of impact. And so, I don't know, I just, I, just, I never get bored seeing the latest newfangled data source that someone wants to throw out these challenges. Chris, you wanted to say something?
0: I, it's, I love reading this stuff. I, I think we're all like sort of onto the same stuff right now. And, and it's, it's fun. I feel like we're in a new age of understanding pitching. One thing that really I'm waiting for Uh, I wonder if any of you have thought this as well is uh, when are we actually going to see management in baseball take a quicker stance when a pitcher does not have something in warmup to your point, uh, Matt, about Eflin, how many two pitch pitchers are there that really, when they don't, you know, take your, take your Jack Flaherty. Jack Flaherty is dominant when he has both his slider and his fastball. If his slider's not great, he's going to get shelled. Like, he'll give up two home runs at least on the fastball those games because the other team figures it out. Those are the ones where, where he's, he's not going as well. Um, y- you can name your your two pitch pitchers and the risk that they run with that. Why is it that we don't have, you know, some analysis happening on the fly in warm-up so that the team can be like, eh, he doesn't have it. We need to have our long reliever ready to go in, like, inning three to take more of, like, the – the playoff style baseball approach to not let a guy totally get tanked and ruin a game. Becker, I see you nodding. Are you with yeah, me? So no, I'm not.
3: I, okay. I think it's an interesting thought. I think there are a couple, maybe strikes against that or not strikes, but why it doesn't happen in practice. One guys can figure it out. You can, I, I have heard pitchers say that I had the worst kind of bullpen, um, you know, of my life. And then all of a sudden I threw a no-hitter. It doesn't happen often, but Um, A a poor bullpen session before the game does not necessarily mean that you're going to get shelled. Um, Second, I I think uh, the managers at least consider who's pitching the next day and who's pitching the following day and the day after that. And so if one guy gets pulled for that very particular reason, it has a cascading effect on the rest of the staff. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest impediment.
2: Yeah, and I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I think it's just hard to have the agility managing a team to have the p- pieces you can plug and play like that. I mean, teams like the Rays that have been experimenting a lot more with openers and just have a lot of pitchers that can go a few innings, I mean, they're probably the best-placed team of all to do something like that, Chris. So I would be curious if they are paying attention, uh, you know, in those bullpens and saying, okay, maybe we'll throw this guy tomorrow and we'll swap in the other guy today. Star, you wanted to say something?
1: Yeah, so I, I think this is yet another – I mean, we talk about – the value of guys having multiple good pitches. And I think, you no, know, I, I think of a guy who I've watched pitch a lot since I've really been paying attention to this kind of stuff. And that's Max Scherzer. And you can really go out and see him on any given start. Like you can tell, like he'll throw, you know, maybe he'll throw a slider or a curve and he won't like it. And I'll just be like, all right, I'm not throwing that pitch today, but he's got four other pitches that he can fuck around with and still get guys out with. And you can see the approach. You can see him like shelve a pitch, you know, in, a, in the first inning and just will never, will not come back to that pitch. And if you're, if you have five pitches like he does, five legit pitches, it gives you the flexibility to do that. Where if you're like a two pitch guy, it can make it a lot harder to succeed when one of those two pitches isn't working for you.
0: All right. I think um, we should just put our stake in the ground here if you want to. Becker and Sean, Matt obviously put out his rankings. A number of things have changed since he did that. Molly switched clubs. Um, I believe Caleb Smith was not kept, and that was somebody that Mark had. But for the most part, we can analyze this. Do you want to uh, take a stance on anyone that you think that Matt over or under ranked here?
2: So I think. As with the, um, the overall projections that Matt ran on our teams, I mean, Jorvi clearly had, like given the, qual- the, the combination of depth and quality at the top, I think his rotation is to me unambiguously number one. And then I think it's kind of pick your poison after that. Like one thing that Matt and I have talked about offline is just how do you think about injury risk? When I look at Brophy's squad, I love you, Darvish and Clayton Kershaw, but both of those guys scare me. Uh, like I assume Kershaw is going to miss a few games with the back tightness, Darvish has been phenomenal recently, but I don't know. You can never trust a guy with that injury history. But at the same time, I mean, if you look at, you know, Sarah, who I also rely on a lot, as I said, he tries to build an injury risk, which he pulls in from Jeff Zimmerman, who's mostly a pan guy. So in some sense, he's ranking Shane Bieber – number three, because he likes him and he thinks he's in that top tier, but he also likes the fact that he's young and at lower injury risk. I tend to like that too. That's one of the reasons why I targeted him last year. Um, So for me, I mean, you know, just to throw in a little rivalry in California winter, I think I would take, I certainly take my top of the rotation over Brophy's uh, just given lower injury risk. Um, But, you know, it's the depth piece as well. Like Brophy has a lot of depth there. Um, Yeah. I mean, Carlos Carrasco going down, I think Knox, stars rotation down a bit. But again, it's sort of like, it's hard to know. And um, I think if we're trying to really project pitching and not just the rotations preseason, I mean, you have to look at people's approach midseason. Are they active on the the wire? Like, well, how do they approach um, the back end? How do they normally acquire their depth? And so that is also hard to predict, but I think some, some teams may be a little more active there and you maybe would bump them up in terms of your projection for, for in-season performance, but that's hard to do (laughs) on the list preseason
3: the only complaint that I have about the rankings is that I if I were star I would have put my team last uh, you know, right now I have nobody. I have Ivaldi and I will probably promote singer, uh, but other than that, the cupboard is bare and i I fully expected Fra- some sort of information on Framer Valdez and um, in fact, had you asked me four or five days ago, I would have told you I'm keeping him without a doubt. So this was very much kind of a late um, shift. I didn't believe it when I first heard that he would be out for a year. And I thought that was such a good contract that even if he misses the first two, three months while his finger is healing, it would still provide value this year and the next. But just to not hear anything uh, scared the hell out of me. And so I don't even know what to think of that. Um, But no, I I got nobody. I'm I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble.
0: That was a tough break, no pun intended. And uh, I, I felt for you. I, I, I think you made the right call for what it's worth. I, I don't think there are many people that were willing to, to uh, offer that one contract. It's, to me, it's less about does he come back and, and does it present value? It's more that you only get to keep five guys. And so if that went belly up, it would have been a, a substantial loss to have not gotten somebody else. So I, I, I personally think you did the right thing there. Um, I, Matt, I, am not going to say, I think he did it wrong. Um, I think he did a very good job. The one, uh, you know, I'm going to stick to my guns of saying that it's, it's not so simple to do this without looking at the, the dollars attached. And for that reason, I think that Josh deserves a lot more credit than the eighth spot. So it's, you know, it's going into the draft. I think you have it right in terms of who has the position that I like the best. Josh would probably go up into the top three for me because he's got so much money. And the four guys that he has uh, are all really good bets that I like. I mean, I I keep waiting for Walker Bueller to be uh, forget, you know, a top 10 guy, like literally number one, he's going to have a year somewhere in there where I think he will. Um, And then I think to, you know, to have Mike Soroka coming off injury is that's a good bet that I want to have as your fourth pitcher. I mean, there's a good shot that that guy's a top 15 pitcher this year. So um, I just think in terms of having hundred and fifty million in the bank to be able to go out and pick his guys, pick his spots, and the four that he has, um, when you look at it from both the angles of financials and who is already on team,
1: I think Josh is in a great spot. Um Yeah, I mean I, can, can we just assume that he's gonna max on he's gonna match on next years or whatever that price is. It seems pretty obvious. That's where that's gonna go. So we can kind of just pencil in next or to Josh's squad. So Probably at fifty five million or whatever he gets.
0: That's probably right. I mean, I, I, I can't envision him doing much else, Uh, but he needs a lot. He he could use some hitting too. I mean, he's, his team's in great shape. He's one of the favorites and there's a good reason for that.
1: So um, all right. I I want to touch on the injury piece real quick, Sean. And you you and I talked about this a little bit, but I just wanted to, I, I, you know, I think the injury risk piece is, is very important, but I think also tough to factor in for me, just because, Pitcher injuries are just such a fact of life. It's like kind of hard to. I mean, there's certain guys who are like obvious. Uh, you know, I'm not going to rate like James Paxton. You know, I just assume James Paxton's pitching 100 innings. <laughs> that's like that's like his ceiling. Uh, a guy like that is is just going to get hurt. But when it's not a guy like that, it's it's so tough because, you know, I mean, what I, what's the stat I saw? Something like 40 percent of starters spend time on a, the injured list over the course of the season. So it's like trying to figure out. Yeah, who that is, I mean, I don't, Jeff Zimmerman does great work on this, but like trying to predict and factor that yeah. in too much is, it's just such a tough exercise just because so many guys are just going to get hurt. And then some of them, some of those guys who get hurt are not going to be the guys who are big injury risk.
2: I think it's one of those things that helps if you're like a real, like a real general manager and you're mal- managing a true portfolio going all the way down to the minors. But when you're like dealing with the kind of stuff that we're dealing with, it's probably not as helpful. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that point is well taken. I will say quickly, because Chris started this segment, I'm like feeling nervous about someone like DeGrom, such a big dollar investment. For me, I think about the year that Chris Sale just sucks before he ended up having to have Tommy John, or I guess it was really a year before that. But I had him and it was just the most frustrating year because he wasn't clearly injured and he would be amazing one start and then terrible the next. It was like the most frustrating thing to have your ace be completely unreliable and you couldn't sit him because you, he could have a 15-strikeout game, and he had several of those. And then he just gives up four home runs. So pitchers, man.
0: So I actually, I, just real quick before we move off this segment, I actually think that this right here is what makes Brophy so good at this game. And, and the reason is because Brophy, since I've been in the league, has been able to withstand any player going down and not letting it kill a season. Last year was the worst I've ever seen Brophy perform in this league in the ghost season, uh, and and everything broke wrong. But I think one of the things that having such a good uh, farm system and like not overspending on any one pitcher, which I've never seen Brophy do, uh, is that then when one guy doesn't go right, you you have a lot more bullets to fire in the gun. Um, and for that reason, I think he deserves a lot of credit. Um, so I let's let's just. Yeah. You, you
1: agree with me on that? I, yeah? I, I would just say I totally agree. I, I, I feel like I learned a lesson a couple of years ago where my team was projected to be so really good, like top of the league, but it was so top heavy. And then a couple of guys got hurt. A couple of those top guys got hurt and everything just fell apart because I didn't have depth. My, my value was concentrated in like a, you know, a handful, of like four or five guys. And then I lost two or three of them. And that was kind of that (laughs) there's something to having the depth that uh, I think I didn't really fully appreciate until I was in that exact situation where I really could have used some more of it.
0: Well, and this is the other piece to this is that this is where head to head is just such a different animal than Rhoda, because you can have uh, a mediocre staff and then play the spots right because you have a deep one where you're, you know, exclusively going up against the pirates and the tigers and the royals. And somehow you, Managed to beat ground that week, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I love about head to head and management specifically um, that I, again, I think that Brophy's really exceptional at, at using. Oh, we'll jump in- yeah.
2: Chris, very quickly on Brophy as well. I think he kind of has like a flywheel effect too, where he's like been good for so long that he's, and he has that depth that he's able to make these speculative buys on injured players that are bouncing back. I mean, that's how he gets a guy like Darvish or Kershaw at a slight discount. And so you can just kind of keep, keep doing that over time and daisy chain it out and you're always going to get that bounce back. I mean, you still have to make the right bets, but, um, but I think, you know, once you get that momentum going, it makes it easier too to execute on a strategy. It just keeps getting better. So
0: I want to give a quick moment before we move off this uh, subject, just to say, um, obviously keepers are in. Uh, everyone made their picks uh, roughly 36 hours ago. Um, I did just have a quick sentence here on our plans. Does anyone have a surprise contract that was not kept? Anyone that you really thought was going to be that now they're back in and you're like, huh, this might be a crickets moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, the only one, and, and actually, like, I feel like upon reflection, I, I'm more okay with this than initially was, but I was really surprised that Nate decided not to keep Lance Lynn, just given the, the pitcher situation. I think he had Lynn for like, you know, $16 million or something. He's going to go for a hell of a lot more than that in the auction. But I think given the lack of star players, uh, I, I think I was under, underrating what bets would, would have gotten in the auction if he was available. And maybe the, the, the savings there is more comparable than I initially thought. But, yeah, Lance Lynn was the one that initially jumped out at me as like a surprise, but I think I'm more okay with it now than I initially was. I thought Ian would keep
2: Francisco Lindor. I think he had him um as potential twenty twenty keeper at like
0: thirty six million. But that was the only one that I, I jumped out at me. I'm with you. But I wonder if and, and if we get Ian on here at some point I'll ask him this. I wonder if like doubling down on the Mets was too painful for him. Like if that suddenly didn't work and he'd spent an entire budget on Lindor. But uh,
2: I feel feel like he's got something cooking for the auction. I've been trying to ask him, like, what what his big plan is because he has so much money coming in. So, you know, we'll see. Got something up his sleeve.
0: Great segue, Sean. Um, So I think, you know, we we probably have time for one more little segment here. Uh, Obviously, we're drafting in six days. I don't think any one of us is going to reveal any secret sauce for our plan um but i would just love to know especially from from Sean and Matt who are both originals like you guys are part of the original LDB crew you've seen the evolution of how teams draft curious to know if you're willing to talk about anything that you always do in prep or um you know Sean i know in, when we first started talking about doing this podcast you mentioned uh that you know that there are a number of folks in this league that really develop a a very concrete financial system that tells them, yes, that's a good price for a player. Go for it. Versus other people who are total, you know, shoot from the hip, you're you're Ian's of the draft. Um, So uh, maybe I'll, I'll have you kick it off, Sean. Like, what do you do? Uh, Are you a, are you a numbers guy? Are you a shoot from the hip guy? And, uh, and, and how much time would you say you put into a draft?
2: Oh God, don't ask me on the time. It's going to be an embarrassing amount. Um, I feel like in the past, I remember being on like Christmas vacation or like, and someone was throwing out trade proposals to the league. And I was like, guys, like let's wait till we're back at the office so we can like do fantasy baseball. Cause I need to be at my desk. But um, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's evolved over time. I, I definitely rely on like the off the shelf auction calculators. Like I use Fangraphs. I used to use baseball prospectus. Um, I just read a ton. I read, I read, I read, read a bunch of analysts that I like. I take notes. I, I write down guys I like. And then, um, You know, I like going into the auction with a team that's already somewhat in place. I think if I can focus on certain needs, I find it easier to like to say, okay, well, I need a second baseman and a first baseman. I want like a couple of good relievers. Like and then I can sort of have a budget that I'm comfortable with and then I can be agile during the auction like, okay, I've got a 30 million pot here. Do I assign it to one player or am I going to break it up to two depending on what happens in the auction? I feel like I can do that better if I've already made a few resource allocation decisions coming in um so i i think that's one thing yeah i mean i don't know how many people really have a complex model i always assumed vj did but you you have to i don't know if you want to reveal behind the curtain what he was doing i know jeff towards the end um was very focused on building out that model and you know he's more of a programmer than i am so but yeah i mean i think to me like if you can spend enough time reading and just diving into this then you can instinctually have a sense during the option. it helps because if you're always relying on the spreadsheet or the paper it's gonna you're gonna miss out on things um and i guess my last point is i always not always i i very frequently buy a player from ian for one dollar or one million dollars in the auction like this has happened like four or five times it's almost always worked out for me so Ian and i have a very good relationship on stuff like that
0: and uh i look forward to to that uh, on saturday Usually when he's like two-thirds the way through his bottle of whiskey, that's when you, you <laughs> see I name. do not
2: understand how he does the data entry and auctioneering and drafts the team. I do not understand
3: it. And manages to spell Manaya correctly.
0: <laughs> it's a, it's uh. a fucking gift. I, I don't know what to say other than it's super impressive. But um, yeah, no, listen, Sean, since you brought it up, VJ is incredibly skilled at this. Um, I have been flying largely without his incredible models, uh, although for the last couple of years, although he did do one, um, uh, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before he's able, he's a wizard. He's able to do a lot of stuff really quickly. And I think the advantage to being a, a stats driven person is that you, you assume that you know, less than the market. Right. And so if you can get, uh, enough of a market sense and plug it into a machine Uh, It takes the personality out of it, whereas I have always been the one who makes the mistakes of being like, that's my guy this year. I I, I will tell everybody right now, like last year, despite having a team that I was really proud of, I made one colossal error. And it was that I decided I was going to draft Clevenger weeks before the auction. I went out and got his RFA rights. I was like, he's my man. I'm getting him. I don't care what happens. Like, I will leave the draft with him. And I think there's a huge flaw to having that type of attitude. And and VJ is far better at that than I am.
1: right. I, just, I don't want to say I told you so on Clevenger, but I, 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 was, I was like, is an injury risk waiting to happen. It's, he's going to break. He's going to break. <laughs> and he broke.
0: <laughs> and it broke my heart. Have you,
1: have, you wa- have you watched that guy pitch? Jesus Christ. It's like the most violent pitching delivery I've ever seen in my life. It's just like, okay, yeah, he's, gonna, he's just going to get injured if he's going to throw the ball like that. It's, there's no other way. It is true. Becker, I'd like to hear, I'd, I'd hear what you think, uh, your thoughts on this, um, your strategy now being in the league for
3: a few years. Yeah, so it's grown exponentially. Uh, I spend way too much uh, of each day reading and tinkering on spreadsheets and making little notes in the margins. It wasn't like that when I first joined the league in 2018. And it's not for lack of caring. Um, I think the one league that I was in and had been in for 10 years was a 10 team home league with some law school buddies. So, and it wasn't AL or NL only. It was simply just like, you know, let's do it live. And it didn't really require a lot of prep because you could pick up a guy off the wire. And, and nobody was uh, quite as, um, you know, fervent about that league as, as probably the, the least interested owner is in this one. So it was, a, it was a whole new ballgame when I first joined, and I learned that very quickly. So uh, what I learned is I had to be a lot more prepared. And this is going to sound dorky, but uh, preparing for this draft in this league reminds me a lot of studying for law school exams. Where I got into law school, and I'd been you know a, a decent student my entire life, but I just kind of showed up thinking that I would make some sort of outline And I would just like crush the exams in my first year of law school, or at least first semester, I just, I did terribly. And I was like, Oh my God, like, I I thought I knew what I was doing. What am I, how do I fix this? And the best advice I ever got at that time was you have to literally live and breathe the subject matter and kind of like think about it and be able to talk about it. And uh, yeah, I feel exactly the same way with this league where you really need to know who the, the seventh pitcher um, on the starting staff is, or you need to know the 26th guy or the guy who's battling for the 26th spot amongst others. So it, it's, it, it's a type of depth and understanding that I lacked before, but I feel, I feel like I've, I've quickly made up that difference to the point where I'm, I'm really excited about it. I, I, I will not, I'm not going to be unprepared. I know that for sure.
0: Matt, you want to make any comments on this? or Are you going to keep your secret sauce in the soup? Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I don't, I, I don't feel like I do anything particularly notable or special anymore. Though I do have one thing I used to do that I think is funny that I'd like to share in a sec. But I mean, yeah, I, I rely on auction calculators, particularly projections. I think for hitters, not so much for pitchers, but I think for hitters in particular, um, it's just <laughs> it's pretty easy to do. Just go that route and you know try to pick a few guys that you maybe like a little bit more um, for pitchers. I, I try to more rely on the, the analysts, like the you, know, the you know, the all the guys we talked about before, um, and their insights. Projections tell a story there, but I feel like projections for pitchers that are anything other than like very established are, are gonna gonna lift. Projections, especially on young pitchers, are just all over the fucking place and it's hard to make anything up. So um, I like to, a couple of things I like to do. I like to make a depth I, I go through I, I go through every year and I make a I go through every team's depth chart. And like like you said, like you're saying, make sure I know like who the twenty sixth, twenty-seventh man is on every single team. So I don't like miss somebody. I wanna like make sure I, I read through like every name on every team and like know something about those players. I think it's a little tougher when you get to like, you know, the eighth guy in the bullpen or something like that. But um I, I, I do that and I think just but like Sean said, just I, I read so much, I listen to a lot of podcasts. It's a lot of it's just like the stuff that I just pick up over the course of the year. Uh, but one thing I used to do, and unfortunately I can't do this anymore, there was a period of time where we all got really reliant on the, the Pocota projections and the auction calculator. And it was very clear that everyone was using them. And so I made a point after this was obvious to figure out what guys I thought Pocota was like way overvaluing and undervaluing and like tr- tried to develop an auction strategy based on that. And I was like, where can I get deals? Who is Pocota overvaluing? Uh, or who's undervaluing that I think I can get for a steal and like really targeted guys like that. <laughs> That's the <laughs> nice thing about the fan drafts, uh, auction calculator. You can
0: use a bunch of different inputs. Yeah,
1: right. Exactly.
0: Matt, I got to say like what you're, what you just said, it reminds me so much of the group think that our league has, where we're clearly listening and reading the same, listening to and reading the same stuff. It must've been two years ago or three years ago that everyone was like, the underrated pitchers are on the Marlins. Everybody, know that the underrated pitchers are on the Marlins. And we got to our draft and everybody was saving like 20 million and Pablo Lopez gets named. And then he went for like 12, 15 million. And we were like, what the fuck is happening here? And then Caleb Smith was the next guy. And like, they, I think actually most of them gave some return on value that year, but it was also, it just, it sort of like, it, it led me to think like who are the names that we're not hearing about because of the group think that's happening among analysts. So um, it is really fun. And
2: we, we had that a couple of years with Danny Salazar, I remember. I feel like one, I feel like I had the buyer's <laughs> remorse where I got him for like 24 million when he was not even a guy yet. Like he was all speculation and then he blew up. And then someone got him the next year. I want to say it was Jorby and he got him
0: for like 16 million and it worked out really well.
3: When was the Nick Pavetta year? year?
0: Yeah. I think they're all the Nick Pavetta year. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I will say, Chris, like, I haven't really This is the year, guys.
1: This is the year.
0: I,
2: I, I'll, you may see me bidding on him in the bargain basement, but don't bid me up or I'll be mad. Um,
1: I was on one thing quick? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Sean. There's something I wanted to say earlier. uh, Pavetta is a perfect illustration of this, because we were talking about Command Plus earlier and the Command Plus metric, and Nick Pavetta is a perfect example of the kind of guy that I think Command Plus tells a great story about, and that, like, I never realized that, like, you know, guys have, pitch- guys have great strikeout rates. They have great walk rates. Um, they miss bats. And, like, why, why can't Nick Pavetta succeed as a pitcher? And it's because a guy can't control his, or he can't command his fastball. That's, like, it, fastball command is, like, this incredibly important thing that I did not understand. And I realized that, like, all these guys, you're like, oh, bad luck, that high BABIP, you know, high home run rate. It's almost always, like, you go to the command plus metric, they have bad commands. So they can't yeah. command their fastballs. They don't necessarily want guys, but they're just throwing fastballs in the middle of the zone, and the ball's getting crushed all the time. They don't have – even the fastballs don't move, or they can't throw them where they want them to, to throw them. And that makes – and Pavetta is a perfect example of guys cannot command his fastball. Yeah. And just throws meatballs over
2: the middle of the plate. On that point, I mean, for me, whenever I see a prospect – pitching prospects who's rated highly in his command, like that always gets my attention because I think most of the guys we're seeing at the top of these lists have plus stuff and some really good pitches, but they often do not have the
3: command. And it's like a a hope and a dream on some of them. So It's the hit tool equivalent, right? You know, you can be jazz Chisholm and and hit a ball 440 feet, but if you strike out 35% of the time, you're not going to have a
0: job. All right, guys, I think we should start wrapping it up. Um, Everyone's got prep to do. Listening to uh, a two-hour-long podcast instead of a one-hour-long might cut into that free time. So uh, I enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Hopefully we can do it again next Sunday after the draft, and we can start breaking down teams. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, yeah, I look forward to it. Any last thoughts before we close out?
3: I want Sean to play us out with some theme music.
2: Yeah, let's, let's do it. I was just going to say I was laughing at Becker's point on the 10-teamer and thinking about the time my cousin, who was, like, 10 at the time and in a league with his dad and his brother and, like, one other person was, like, listening to me talk about my team and just, like, telling me how terrible it was. And I was like, kid, you're in a four-teamer. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, yeah, let's, uh, let's listen to the sweet sounds of John Fogarty one more time and let Star wants to say something as, as it goes.
0: All right, then I guess you do that, Sean. We'll see everybody next week.
1: Yeah, see everyone on Saturday morning.